always ready to start when I hear Nick say, come on, Dave, that's my cue that I can get going. Thanks. Good morning once again. Thanks for the CAP ministry this morning. If you're not familiar with what that stands for, it's Campus and Professional. The CAP ministry representing, that was great, and thank you for the communion as well. Also, we'd like to welcome Alberto's father, Greg, who's visiting here. If you don't mind standing up, he's, he's the gentleman. There he is. We can, we can see where Alberto gets his good looks from, and Marcus, and so welcome, great, glad to have you here, and then our brothers, uh, brother and sister uh, Manohar and Ashanti will head back to India. If you guys could stand up, they, they head back to India this Sunday, I believe. So I'll miss you all the best, safe travels, and... Um, Unlikely partnerships are kind of what you see in film. I don't know if you remember the film 48 Hours, and it's a little bit older, but it had Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte, like unlikely partners to be paired together. Anybody seen it? It's, It's a good, funny film. Or kind of the modern day Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker, these unlikely partnerships that are working together. Or even in our case, New Zealand. And uh, an American church leader, kind of like unlikely partnerships, they're working together. And as you read through the Bible, the most dramatic, cosmic, unlikely partnership is God and humanity. And so that's very evident in this text this morning as, as we read it. So we'll pray and read Acts chapter 11 as we continue our study of the book of Acts. And look at how God really does partner with humanity in an unlikely way for a miraculous result. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful that your son Jesus made the sacrifice for us to be here. And we pray that as a result of that, we live our lives in a manner worthy of the calling. And as we read the scriptures, that your spirit really does open our minds and our hearts and really call us to action in response to who you are and what you've done. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Also worthy of note is after church, I think the cat ministry said they're shouting everybody $5 pizza at Freeman Gray. So... Because everybody wondered, where is that? Well, they're they're, going to show us. Thank you for that. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, Stephen is killed and people start scattering everywhere. And here is some of the places they're going. Simultaneously to that, we've seen Cornelius get converted and his household. This is kind of a summary of what's going on in other parts of the area. In verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. You had to imagine a church being led by Barnabas and Saul for one year. How fired up 
would that be? In verse 27, During this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted a severe famine that would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius, and it's also documented in Roman history. In verse 29, The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And the context here is Antioch is... One of the, it is the first church where Jews and Gentiles will worship together. The church starts in Jerusalem and it's dominant Jews. But now for the first time, it's, it's a group that becomes a mixture of Jew and Gentile. So Antioch and Jerusalem are kind of similar. They're both pillar churches and they both really have a great early church culture. And Antioch, one of the first of the mixture. It's also the first time in Acts chapter 11 in verse 19 where evangelism, where, where they're sharing their faith and it's not the apostles or it's not figures like Philip or Stephen. It just says those who had been scattered started preaching the word. And so not only is it the first church where there's a mixture, but it's also the first scene where it's just everybody is sharing their faith about Jesus. And it's also the first instance of disciples in verse 26, where up until this point, there was a variety of terms, believers, the way, the followers of Jesus. But here is where the term Christian specifically was designated. It's the Greeks were becoming Christian and it was something entirely new. And they're saying they're not becoming Jews. They're becoming little Christ. They're becoming like Jesus. And so this name stuck and it's only three times in the Bible that this word occurs. But through this passage, we, we really do see how God and man start working together. And so this morning we'll look at three points about how this is illustrated. Firstly, the hand of God and the mouths of men. This, this text illustrates this, this idea of them working together. And it's not only here, but it's also throughout the entire Bible. Look at verse 21. Luke, the author of Acts, goes out of his way to mention the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And so if you combine this with verse 20 and 19, it's God's hand. The Lord's hand is the one that's with them, but it's actual people talking and spreading the news of Jesus. So you see this combination of God is working, but it's actually the mouths of men that spread the gospel. In verse 23, there's a similar concept. When Barnabas arrives and it says he saw what the grace of God had done. You have to imagine that he walked into church and with his eyes, there was something visible about God's grace. He comes and says, These, this is a new kind of church. This is a new kind of mixture. I see it with my own eyes. And he's, he's very clear that God's grace was the catalyst in this. But what had it done? It had brought Jews and Gentiles together as a result of men preaching. And so in, in this, you really see that God and man work together. It, even on a more significant note, Barnabas is the guy they choose to go and scout out this mission. Now, why is that important? We learn in Acts chapter 4, he's from Cyprus. And why is that important? Which he grows up in kind of a Gentile surrounding. So he's familiar with Gentiles, probably a bit sympathetic toward Gentiles. And they say, we need somebody to go check out if the Gentiles are really accepting the gospel and what it's all about. And they choose Barnabas. 
And that, that's a divine appointment that had to be somebody who was somehow connected and can sympathize with Gentiles to go. And when he does, he gets there and he says, man, God's grace is truly working here. But it's through Barnabas that bridges the gap between the Jews and the Gentiles. So it's no coincidence they choose Barnabas to go and scout out this mission. So abundantly through this passage in the Bible, you see that God is working, but he's working through men. The hand of the Lord is turning people, but it's the men who are preaching the gospel. The grace of God is bringing people together, but it's the men who are preaching the gospel. Now, if, if you trace back to the beginning in creation, there's something profound that happens. In Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the earth, he gives Adam, he gives Adam a command, Adam and Eve a command. And, and the command is this, be fruitful, fill the earth, and subdue it. And that's, that's an important task because that's a bit separate from what he tells Adam and the task he gives him for the garden. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That may not seem like a big deal, but he's given him two divine tasks. One is to be fruitful, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. That, that means there's a bit of work involved. It's not, it, it needs some management. It needs some, some hands-on work. Subduing is labor-intensive. But for the task in Eden, he just says, take care of it. Because Eden, if, if, if you study out Eden, it's this idea of perfection. Why? God's walking through the Garden of Eden. The whole world, the whole earth is not Eden. But it's Eden is a tiny section. And so he gets these divine tasks of, hey, Eden is perfection. I want you to take care of that. But I want you to subdue the earth. I want you to fill the earth. I want you to multiply the earth. And I want you to subdue it. And I want you to rule over it. It's the backdrop for the kingdom. Because Eden is perfect. And basically God is saying, I want you to go spread Eden around the rest of the earth. I'm divine, and I created all of this, but I want to partner together for me and you to bring Eden to the rest of the earth. That's pretty profound if you think about that, because God could have just made it all happen with a snap of his fingers or just the word off his lips. But instead, he creates this unlikely partnership and says, I, I want to work together with you to spread my image. That's very powerful, and that's very, that's very profound. And, and what does all this imply? Well, a lot of things, right? But it means God is communal. God, in his essence, is communal. He has no need for companionship or partnership. But he chooses to create beings so that he can interact with them. And people, I believe people who ultimately reject God, they want to just be alone. They just want to be isolated. They just want to be self-absorbed. Why? Because God is community and he chooses to interact with us. He chose to interact in the beginning. He chose to interact with man as the church begins. And he does it today, partnering with mankind. It also means that God doesn't really need our assistance, right? If you think about it, God could have easily just populated the earth and put some people here and put some people there. He could have subdued the earth over here and subdued the earth over there. He could have planted churches all over around the ancient world just by snapping his fingers. But he doesn't. He chooses to partner with mankind. Which is very profound. He chooses to work together. And, and, and I believe that it, it's helpful for us because often we overemphasize our part of the deal or we underemphasize our part of the deal. 
But God wants to partner with us. And, and whenever you think, oh, I'm not able, I don't know enough, I can't do enough, surely I can't do that, little old me, you don't really realize that it's God partnering with you doing all the real hard work anyway. Or if you think, if I'm not involved in this, or I'm not involved in that, or if I don't have a say in this, or my hands aren't in this, then you think too highly of yourself. Because God doesn't need you anyway. But, but the truth of the matter is, there's this beautiful cooperation between the hand of God and the mouths of men. And it also implies that if you really understood this concept at its depth, you'd have such great enthusiasm to work on God's behalf. If you really understood, man, God, the divine being, the supreme creator of all, wants to partner with me, I want to be enthusiastic about that. No one who is a disciple of Jesus should be half-hearted in their partnership with God. It means every ounce of our mind and our strength and our soul and our spirit should give everything we have because God chose to partner with us. In the end, believing in God and following Jesus is about partnering with the supreme divine being. And what a beautiful chemistry it is. The hand of God works through the mouths of men. Secondly, God wants us to be bridge builders. And Barnabas is a really good example of this. He, he's, we've talked a little bit about this, but if you think about the, the long-held conflict of Jew and Gentile, and Barnabas is chosen to go and basically build, be a bridge builder for the Jews and the Gentiles. And it's a really big deal because up until this point, we've seen an Ethiopian eunuch get converted, which they're fired up about, but that's only one guy. And then they've seen Cornelius and his house get, fired, get converted, and they're excited about that. But the church in Jerusalem is also a bit curious and critical of why are you talking with these guys. And now an entire church of Gentiles pops up on the scene. And so Jerusalem obviously says, okay, well, we, we got to figure this one out. Let's, let's, let's go and let, let's send Barnabas and let's see what his report is. So they do. They, they send Barnabas and we learn that he's earlier in the book of Acts. He's generous. He's, he's helping people who don't have much. And so even, he's even building bridges then. He's building bridges between people who have and people who don't have. And now he's building this relational bridge. He, he, he arrives and sees, man, God's grace is working. Now think about if they would have sent somebody else who had grown up just in a primarily Jewish environment with no real sympathy toward Gentiles. Imagine that person coming and seeing Gentiles happy, fired up, serving God, but there's a little bit of curiosity, there's a little bit of criticism, and they say, yeah, I went to the church, but it, they didn't really follow all the laws of Moses. They, they're not really keen on being circumcised. They're not really following the mall. I'm not quite sure this is going to work. Had they sent somebody else, there could have been a different outcome. But Barnabas goes, and because he's such a gracious guy, he sees God's grace working, he builds this relational bridge. Plus, in this text, when it says that, he, that people are turning to the Lord, in verse 25, he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. I mean, the church is growing, and he's quite humble. He realizes, I can't really take care of this myself. I've got to go hunt somebody else down. He goes and finds Paul, brings Paul back, and so for a whole year, they start teaching the church. And so he, he doesn't just build the bridge between Jerusalem and Antioch. He also connects Paul, who's kind of an outsider at this point, because people are, who is this guy? And so you have to really realize what Barnabas is doing to understand this significance. Now, this is a picture of the world's most incredible bridge. Where is it? What's well, in Virginia? 
No, it's not the world's most incredible bridge, but it is called the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, right? And it was built in the 1950s, and its impact was immediate. It bridges Virginia to the state of Maryland. It crosses the Chesapeake Bay. I think you have to pay $10. Is it $10? $10 to go one way across and $10 on the way back, or maybe... You've You've been on it, Tyson? Yes? You've been on it, Chloe? That's so sad. <laughs> but it bridges, it bridges Virginia and Maryland, and, and soon after this was built, impact was immediate. On both ends of the bridge, little communities start popping up and prospering. Why? Because there had been a bridge there that didn't exist before, and the influence and the impact was felt immediately. It also reduced traffic, because now there's another way to get, to get from point A to point B, and people start using this. About 60,000 cars travel on this bridge every day. And so its impact was immediate, plus, if you know film, Mission Impossible 3, on the bridge, Tom Cruise, and all the fighting goes down. That happens on that bridge. And if you look closely, you'll see me in the background. (laughs) No, but any bridge, if you think about it, any bridge that gets built, there's some kind of immediate impact. Things start to improve. Things start to flourish. That's what's happening here in a spiritual way in this passage. Barnabas, the bridge builder, comes and sees this is a good thing, and he connects Jew and Gentile. Now, I think that we have to be a church of bridge builders as well, right? And it happens on a lot of levels, but one, one really easy way is right after church. If, if, you, if you really get this passage and you understand what Barnabas is and he's doing, then you're looking for, you're looking for people to connect after church. Hey, this is my friend Joy. Let me t- introduce you to friend Joy. Hey, this is my man Nick. He lives right down the street. He's my neighbor. He comes from and gets lemons from my lemon tree. Let me introduce you. Hey, I don't recognize you. Let me, you you're looking to connect people. Yeah. Because that's, that's what the heart of a disciple does. And you, you, you connect people. And you're also able to see people's positive aspects. We all have flaws, right? We all have heaps of flaws. But Barnabas comes and he sees, look, hey, this is, this is actually a good thing. I can see the grace of God operating here. Let me mediate between these two perspectives and bring them together. So a person that builds bridges, they're always looking for evidence of God's grace. What's the good in people so I can build them up and so I can encourage them and strengthen them and help them and etc. And, and, but but there's, there's also a caution for people that build bridges because they often want everybody to be happy. Which is a good thing, but that's just not reality, is it? That never really happens. And so you'll find in Galatians chapter 2, Barnabas, because he wants to please some of his friends, starts to withdraw, eating from the very people he helped build the bridge with in the beginning. And so if, if you are the type of person that connects people, that's awesome. But just be cautious. You'll never be able to please everybody. At some point, you have to take a stand and, and say something. But, and, and, and also, if you're not building bridges, we need to learn to be like that. We need to learn to be like Barnabas and build these. And if you're not building them, there's a potential that you're burning bridges. Relationally. You always see the wrong in other people. You're more interested in proving yourself than in being united. That's not really building bridges. That, it's, that's the type of person people dread to interact with. Yeah. People that burn bridges. But God, God shows us a, a healthy dynamic as somebody who builds bridges. And, and a good question is you're fellowshipping with people to say, hey, hey who, are, who are the good examples of this in our fellowship? Who are people that I could imitate? Who, who in our fellowship really brings people together? Who really connects people? Because some people are really gifted at that. 
But we all need to develop that quality. And then you can even take a step further and say, hey, just, just be honest. What's your impression of me? Do I really build, do I bring people together? Or do I see the worst in people? And, and let me express two things about when you ask input about people. One is, if you're asking input, you're basically opening the door for them to speak truth to you. So don't get offended when they tell you truth. <laughs> All right? That's the deal, right? Hey, can you really tell me what, what you think about me? Yeah, you're not a bridge builder. Bro, what's your problem? You know, that's, that's not how it works, right? So if you open yourself up, be ready to swallow some truth. The other side of the coin, if somebody invites input, tell them the truth. Don't tell them what they want to hear. What do you think about that? Oh, man, you're great. Tell them what you say to other people. Right? When you go home and tell your spouse, tell them what you say to your spouse or your flatmates. I can't believe what bro and so and so did. And then when they come and ask you input, oh, everything's great. <laughs> That's not how it works. Right? And, but, but, but I think we, we, can, we can all work on being bridge builders. And for God's work to move forward, because after this, the mission really starts to move forward. For it to do so, we all need to build bridges. Amen? Third and lastly, we need continued maturity. If you look close in this passage, you can see the pattern of the church maturing throughout the book of Acts. Look at verse 23. And, and this is a side note, more of a, an emphasis, but not, not just a side note. Jesus is the ultimate bridge builder. Divine being, leaving heaven, coming to earth, building bridge with humanity. So we, we think what we do is a big deal, but Jesus did the ultimate thing, as we've seen on there. And, co- and continued maturity is in verse 23, when Barnabas arrives, he saw what the grace of God had done, and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord. That's awesome, but it doesn't end there. If you follow the flow of the passage, that's, that's the culture of the church. God's grace is moving, he's doing some encouraging, he's doing some teaching, and the result of that, in verse 24, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. It's not coincidence that God's grace was being operated in there. Barnabas is encouraging. He's teaching. And the fruit of that, people are brought to the Lord. So you see that when, when people understand God's grace and it's working and they're being encouraged, it matures them and people start becoming Christians. That's the flow of that. Also, in verse 26, when Barnabas finds Saul and brings him to Antioch, it says, For a whole year Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. So this is a massive congregation. And again, Paul and Barnabas doing teaching for an entire year. If, if we had someone that gifted for a year, imagine how elevated the church would be after that year. Imagine how mature it would be after that year. And in verse 29, it's not coincidental that because there's this famine that's about to happen, after they've been taught, after they've been encouraged, in verse 29, the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This is also a very big deal, okay? They didn't say... Let's pass around the plate. Okay, that wasn't good enough. Let's pass it around again. Okay, one more time. Let's pass around the plate because our brothers and sisters need some help. They didn't do that. There wasn't even a real teaching series on it. It was just Paul and Barnabas teaching for a year. And it created this culture of, there's a need and I need to give. It's pretty simple. Plus, it's Gentiles 
giving to Jews. So on these two levels, it's pretty profound, but it's, it's a result of their continued maturity. Barnabas is there encouraging them. Paul comes in and teaches them. The church is growing. They're giving. Why? Because the Word of God matures people. There's tangible signs of it. Verse 24, the church is growing. Verse 29, people are being helped. And so, and plus, they're cooperating with other churches now. It's Antioch and Jerusalem and Judea. And so as the maturity starts to grow, it's not just Barnabas cooperating, but it's church and church cooperating. And praise God for that. I think that as the, as, as the, as the church continued to mature, they also appoint elders. That's what it says in verse 30. So they collect this gift. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul, the elders in Jerusalem. That's also very important. Because up until this point, the apostles handled almost everything. But then when the needs of the Hebraic and the Hellenistic Jew widows, they, there's, they, they say, okay, well, we're gonna sh- we're gonna, let's be mature. Let's shift this responsibility here. And as the church continues to grow, let's mature. Let's appoint some elders. Now the finances are coming in. The apostles don't even touch it. They don't even mess with it. They got elders overseeing it. So you see the maturity of the church. But there's always a connection with God's word and maturity. It's not coincidence that Paul and Barnabas are teaching them and encouraging them. And as a result, there's maturity. Jesus makes this abundantly clear in Matthew 13 with the parable of the sower. At the end of that, and it's, it's, it's different from the other versions of the parable of the sower. Because in Matthew's version, Jesus says, whoever has will be given more, and whoever doesn't have, it'll be taken away from them. It's a direct connection to how people listen to God's Word. If you're listening to God's Word and you're applying it, more will be given to you. If you just hear it and you don't apply it, even what you think you have will be taken away. So there's always this connection between God's Word and helping us mature. You've seen these growth charts, right? With as parents, you go take your kids to the plunk and nurse, and you get fired up or you get nervous. Like, where's Luke? Luke's in the what? Twenty? I don't even know. He's tiny, but he, but I'm always like, come on, man, get up there on the growth chart, boy. You know, and uh, but I don't say it to him. But but there's there, but there's just some kind of expectation for growth. There's some kind of expectation for maturity. You get to age two and you say, if you double your height at age two, you'll be that tall as a adult. I'm like, oh man, he's going to be small. But I, that's all. But, but you know, you get this expectation of growth and they have these growth charts, right? But I did hear a rumor that there is a different growth chart for Filipinos. I don't know if that's true, but I, I, I it's a little bit different. That's just what I heard. I don't know if that's true. But I'm actually trying to build bridges, so I, I think it's all the same. I think it's all the same. It's, it's the same. Yeah, it's all the same. Building bridges. It's Hobbiton. There it is. There's the good. I actually don't know how they got in there. I just want to lift up our church. I I believe we're maturing as a church as as people respond to God's word. I couldn't be more inspired by our campus and professional ministry. Man, there's really inspiring, you know. I couldn't be more inspired by our teen ministry. 
man, those guys are really starting to blossom and come into life. And, and pretty soon they'll be taking our jobs. Come on. Yeah. And that's awesome. It's evident they're listening to the word of God. It's evident it's taken root in their life. And so if, if there was a thought exercise I would like to leave you with, it's what, you know, have a look at your spiritual growth chart. Because they do, they do take these kids every periodically and there's an expectation of growth. Yeah. If you say, well, you know, how long have you been a Christian, bro? I've been a Christian very long. Well, why is it so hard for you to take the plank out of your eye and see the speck in others? You know, what's your own growth chart? Well, why is it so hard? How long have you been a Christian? Well, why is it so hard for you to seek advice? I mean, there's an expectation when you mature, you start to... How long have you been a Christian? Why is it so hard to grasp the concept of being devoted to the body? You know, there's a growth chart. And, but, but at the other end, as you get older, your eyes should be ones that look for needs and not problems. I think that's what's going on here. They're seeing hey, that there's a need over there as you mature. You know grace has affected you and you want to impact other people. And so you look for those things. When you mature and you get stuck in your spiritual life, you bring people in. You don't isolate yourself. Everybody gets stuck and everybody goes through ups and downs. But when you mature, you say, I'm stuck. I'm going through a downtime. I need some help. Or we need some help, or whatever it is. As you mature, you actually start to extend more mercy and grace toward people. And less criticism and judgment. Because you understand, hey man, God, God's big, I'm small, and we're all just doing the best we can. And that's what happens when you mature. And you, you get the idea, right? As you mature, certain things are expected of a disciple. Where are you? Are you maturing? Are you allowing God's word to produce growth in you? Pull someone aside today if you're stuck and say, look, I'm stuck and I need help. Amen. As we've looked at the book of Acts, we've seen this this beautiful chemistry of God, his hand overseeing the church growth, but also at the same time, men and women being used by God. It's the most unlikely partnership, if you think about it, a divinity coming down and partnering with us to spread his message and spread his gospel. But he uses men and women who build bridges. And he uses men and women who continue to mature as they hear God's word. Let's be like that in Auckland. Amen. Amen.